Welcome to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm Dr. James and I'm here with Dr. Dante. We are going to talk soul today. We're going deep. And, you know, we've talked in the past a little bit about where we came from as osteopathic physicians, but today we really want to delve into this subject. Don't jump into the deep end and go for a swim about where Dr. Still came from and where his ideas came from and how his ideas were not necessarily all his own. Now that's that's some uh, inflammatory talk, man. I, thought, I know, right? I, I thought uh, I thought what happened was he got struck by a lamb, by by a ram or whatever, and all the ideas came, you know, fully formed. Isn't that the Isn't that the story? If only, if only. Now we we know that Doctor Still did come up with some revolutionary things, but as is the case with most revolutionary things, usually the person who develops them is standing on the shoulders of giants, right? right. We, we've all heard that phrase, I, I stood on the shoulders of giants. And Dr. Still was no different than that. He was actually, though he wasn't a true academic in the sense of going to Cambridge or Oxford or Harvard or, or, or any number of universities. He, he went a, to his dad's house. He went to his dad's house. His dad being a, an itinerant preacher and itinerant um, physician. Uh, he was very well read when it comes to anatomy, uh, physiology, some of the philosophies and history coming from Europe and uh, even in the United States. He was very well versed in uh, some of the popular things going on at his time. And that colored, that shaped some of his ideas. Right. Now, there's this other podcast out there, way better than ours for the record. So check it out if you haven't already. It's Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Show. Mm -hmm. um, the reason I bring it up is there's this idea that uh, he brings up all the time in his discussions of you know big movements and big uh, people in history. There's two ways classical historians would like to talk about these type of transformative events. There's the great man theory, like, you know what? This never would have happened if not for Alexander the Great, if not for... Albert Einstein. Right, yeah. so on and so forth. And then there's the trends and forces model of history where all of these big geopolitical things and like little little revolutions here and there converge together to make the betting for a big thing to happen. And then his position, which I endorse, which I like a lot, is that it's kind of really both. The great men in history can only be great men as such because of all the things that happen around them. So hooray, kudos to Mr. Founderman for putting it all together to do what we do now, right? This is our job. Right. But at the same time, it will be a dishonor to history to just say that this guy popped it out of nowhere, it came from something. Right. In the so last episode, we talked extensively about how ridiculous um, the American frontier was from a med medical aspect. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it was dismal. Right. This <laughs> At best. Right. This skill set was born of that. That's a cool sentence. It was born of necessity. Yes. <laughs> but it grew because of its efficacy. Right. So... I guess we'll spend this episode today talking about how this came to be. And it's important for us to understand our roots because it is by our roots that we continue to grow. And by staying true to our roots, we can become stronger as a community. And, you know, Dr. Steele was really colored and influenced by his frontier life. You know, he was raised on a farm, essentially. And as many farmers did back in that time, his dad had to do a number of different jobs just to, to stay afloat, to feed his family. So in addition to being a farmer, he was a pastor. 
uh, a, a itinerant preacher right. traveling the countryside. And usually when you're an itinerant preacher, you're asked to do other things. He taught himself for the most part, as far as I understand, medicine. Right. And um, one of the ways to learn medicine at the time was more of an apprentice style rather than back east or in Europe where you could go to a medical school. There are no medical schools available or very few medical schools available. So you learn from someone else who is already doing things. And you might learn techniques that may not be in the textbooks, but they learned may have some eff efficacy. <laughs> many of them didn't. Many of them did. It was hard to tell. Right, right. There was this idea of frontier medicine as separate from I guess we'll call it ivory tower medicine. Yeah, academic medicine, right. for sure. The and heroic medicine. Yeah, and I, and I use the word ivory tower versus frontier because the two versions of American medicine were really not that kind to each other. No, they weren't happy with each other. Right, and the reason for that was because the frontier things were, as we said earlier, born out of necessity. When you don't have access to all the fun toys, you got to make do with what you got. You got to MacGyver your way through healthcare. Oh man, yeah, you do. Yeah, and um, and he did. They right. Did. At this point, I'm basically calling. He's still MacGyver, so... Dr. MacGyver. Right, Dr. MacGyver. <laughs> That's a compliment for the record. Oh, we uh, should use that music. <laughs> here's the thing. I don't know if everybody understands the MacGyver reference anymore. Well, if they, if they don't, there, there's a new MacGyver show out on, the, on, uh, on, I think it's one of the major networks. Netflix, Hulu, yeah, one of them things. Yeah. yeah, there is a new MacGyver show. So hopefully people are familiar with the new MacGyver if they're not familiar with the original. Okay, because that reference should never die. It should never die. Oh, man. But... The frontier medicine was MacGyvered. Mm -hmm. It was uh, made with what parts you, you had to do. An adjective. Do. There you go. <laughs> Sweet. This is as opposed to the university medicine, the academic medicine, which did have the power of science behind it. But the trade-off was, you kind of needed, you know, urban-level resources to make do. Right. You needed funding, and you needed resources that you didn't have on the frontier. Right. And access to manufacturing and uh, transportation that just was not readily available. Right. Then keep in mind, the frontiersmen, as a class of people, did not really trust the urban folk anyway. And then multiply that by the medicine that was around at the time was a problem. It created as many problems as it fixed, or maybe more. Right. And people recognized that if I took this medicine or did this treatment, like bloodletting or whatever, I didn't turn out all that great. Right. So the 19th century ended up becoming a really, really strange breeding ground in the American West for various classes, various versions of seeking a better way. We talked about um, there's that some folks believe you can heal the body with the sun. Some folks believe you could heal it with water. Some folks believe you could do it with magnets. Some folks you believe, it, you believe you could heal it with movement. But the story for A.T. Still developing the thing that became osteopathy is nested in the story of how American medicine grew up in the first place. Right. It's an American creation, which is kind of cool because, hey, American, sweet. Yeah, like, you know, we, we wave did. the flag, shoot a gun, drink some beer. But <laughs> we did innovate. Yeah, yeah. We are innovators as a, as Americans in general, and in medicine, we were no different from that standpoint. Exactly. Um, and the the social aspect of medicine was interesting as well. How a lot of medicine was not in a clinical setting. There were no clinics if you were in Western Kentucky. Right. If you were out in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, if you were out in Illinois or uh, Michigan or wherever the frontier was at the, at the time, there were no clinics. There were very few hospitals, and hospitals were often places you went to die right. if you could get any treatment at all. And that's not us throwing shade at the hospital system at the time, for the record. It was actually the place you go to die because 
uh, you, you can hear that and misunderstand and go, oh, got it, these guys don't like hospitals. That's not what we're saying here. In this time period, in the 19th century, the role of the hospital was essentially that. Right. They weren't capable of much else. Why? Because your options were surgery or the medicines. The surgery was actually pretty reasonable for what it did, but yeah. it couldn't stop infection. This is the time before penicillin, and the medicines available were quite literally mercury. So what could you do? At that point, if you were so sick that you needed that kind of care, what was happening was that you were so sick that you needed to be separated from the home. The issue with that is most of the good medicine done in this time period, in this environment, was done in the home setting, and that's very right. strange. Done by mothers. Exactly, I mean, we, yeah. we have all the, the old wives' tales we talk about, but that was how they could live. Right. And that's why they could afford. If there were medications available, they weren't readily available in the frontier setting because it was expensive to get them there. It was expensive to manufacture them and to transport them. Um, so you may do with what you had. You did what you had. And now the Native American population had some pretty good success with, uh, with their knowledge of herbs and local flora and fauna that they could use. Um, more of flora than anything, but um, even they were not necessarily willing to give up their secrets. They had uh, specific places where they could go that they knew that there were plants growing there that would heal specific ailments, but those were secret. Right. And the, the settlers uh, from the Americans' uh, colonies, they, they wouldn't know that. Right. They did what they could, but yeah, what can you do? So with A.T. Still, what ended up happening was he's the son of a Methodist preacher. Right? Right. And a lot of what became Still's professional life was colored by that idea because one of the interesting things that needs to be layered on top of the story of osteopathy is the Civil War. Like that and, Civil and War. The Civil War was transformative for the practice of medicine, specifically surgery. That's when we start seeing anesthesia using, that's when we start seeing some septic technique or aseptic technique right. uh, being started. That's when we see the profession of nursing finally taking a professional form uh, based on what had been done by the British Empire during the Crimean conflict and then brought over to the Americans. And um, up, to the, up to the point of the Civil War, before the Civil War, nursing was you go home and your loved one cared for you. Right. And there may, the, the profession was actually not held in high regard until the Civil War. Well, the thing is, it wasn't the profession. It was just your role as um, somebody who took care of the home. Remember, to nurse was not nursing the medicine field. It was to nurture, to take care of. Right. So there was a big jump to make between to nurse someone back to health and, hey, nursing is a legitimate job. Right. And it is. It sincerely is. But this is the time when this was just beginning to evolve out of it. But the reason the Civil War is such a big deal for this is because the Civil War story is also the slavery story. And so much of what became osteopathic medicine, so much of it became Still's fundamental presuppositions, wouldn't have happened if not for his close interactions with the Shawnee. But that wouldn't have happened if his dad wasn't anti-slavery. And he was living in a place where slavery was a huge issue. It was one of those border states and the, there were new territories coming on board. And the question of whether or not the new territory was going to be slave or free was contentious at, at best right. and deadly at worst. So some f a family that was living in this territory that was anti-slavery, they were in trouble. Exactly. The Methodist church that uh, Still's family was part of, as a group, 
took an took a pro-slavery stance during this timeline. Now things have changed, obviously, but at this point in time, they were a pro-slavery organization. However, um, Abram still, A.T. Still's father, mm-hmm. was anti-slavery. So what ended up happening from there was they started giving him all of the not so nice jobs, such as the Wakarusa mission, right, which was the deployment to the Shawnee territories to preach to the natives and the people in that area. It was almost like an exile. It was pretty much an exile situation for him. Right. Because I remember I was reading some of the uh, the writing on that time period when Still's father was commanded to go to uh, the West, to the Shawnee territories, his mother almost didn't come with her because his mother lost her family to those people during so a So that raid. would have been a bitter pill right. to take, uh, to go to the people that had killed her family. Exactly. And that would also have been a frightening proposition because there was still not a great relationship between the American government and the native populations because of all of the different pol- politics and interactions between the government and the native population. Exactly. And a lot of Still's time growing up now, keep in mind, I say growing up as if he was a kid. No, he was an adult at this point in time. But his formative years as an adult were spent closely intermingling with the Shawnee people, specifically as their physician, as their healer. Keep in mind, he also was a little disillusioned with the American medicine model at the time. So he was learning from them as much as they were learning from him. So you end up with this strange hybridized thing. Now, I'm not going to say that osteopathy is some combination of native medicine and American thing. That's not what happened here. But that cracked the door open. That allowed for the psychological transformations that happened next, right? It did prime him for the development of osteopathic medicine. And really, he preferred the term osteopathy. He didn't even like pairing it with medicine initially. That was It was some of his students who really insisted on calling it osteopathic medicine. Right. Um, they wanted to earn some legitimacy. I wanted to, the public to be able to recognize the legitimacy of the profession as a healing profession. But uh, this experience with the Native American population, with the Shawnees, set the stage for his innovation. Right. What ended up happening, this is really a history lesson, so we're, we're kind of having fun we're, bouncing we're back and forth. We're going a little dry, one. but it's, it's all good. But it's he, all good. Ultimately, the reason this is important is because the reason him getting that little crack in the door for the non-traditional is important is because not shortly afterwards, he had a massive crisis of the faith. Right. What ended up happening was his family, a lot of his family died from, sept, uh, from spinal meningitis. It was what, three of his kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what ended up happening was there's a culture within within medicine to not treat your own family, right? Right. So you can't be objective with your loved one. Exactly. Like, I love my kid. I love him so much I'm going to do whatever I need to do for him, which is pretty damn cool, but that's not the same thing as being objective. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need the objective eye. So still uh, commissions some of his trusted physician colleagues to take care of his family, knowing that that's the right move, and he's watching them. He's watching them do all the things that he's trained to do and they're doing it to the best of their ability that he believes, and then he loses his family. And they still died. So he retired from medicine after that. He gave up on the whole thing. Like, uh, that's it. I'm done. Right. I'm done. Threw his hands up. And he, he had some harsh words about this idea. It wasn't like a, oh, man, what was me? He, his faith collapsed just briefly because of that. He was talking about how whatever God could create that scenario, that these well-to-do holy physicians could not save his family with the best moves they had means that they were guessing at best. And if 
those people are holy men and those people are treating like this and they're just guessing. That means that their God is a guessing God. So he began to believe that the way that things were was insufficiently accurate. He began to think that the true God, not necessarily the different God, but the truer version, the more accurate, right? Because true means true flight, right? True right, is in right. hitting your mark Straight God. line on the mark. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. His idea was that there had to be something else that was truer than this. And then that's that when he God abandoned medicine. Just, God wouldn't just guess. The way the body was designed was not guesswork. Exactly. And then essentially after his crisis of the faith, he he fiddled around a bit, but he found something called American spiritualism. And that was a relatively new uh, movement at the time. Right. And it's a strange thing because the American spiritualism thing goes back to the medicine thing because there was, I think at some point you mentioned Mesmer. Yes. being mesmerized, didn't you? Yes, yes, the French Yes, mesmer. So the thing that was mesmer became, uh, or rather was brought to the Americas by a guy named Quimby. Quimby right. ended up bringing mesmerization, the word's magnetism. Magnetic, magnetic healing, exactly. essentially. Yeah, th yeah, things changed with French to English yeah, plus time. Sitting in a uh, magnetized tub with electrodes and uh, hanging out there, uh, letting electric current generate a magnetic field and, and, and healing. There's definitely a movie starring Wolverine that features exactly that. <laughs> and uh, Batman. It was Wolverine and Batman. Right. But uh, fortunately, we don't have any adamantium to uh, there you <laughs> conduct go. electricity. But um, Quimby brought magnetism to the Americas. Quimby, uh, Quimby's magnetism ended up taking really strong hold in the frontier because, hey, it's better than calomel. Right. But yeah, it's, it's better than chicken guts. Right. And the cool thing about that is the idea with magnetism is that there is harmony in nature. There's this idea that the body is, or rather nature is capable of self-regulation, self-healing. Right. Nature yeah, can maintain itself. overriding uh, tenet of what we do. Exactly. And the guy who became the American spiritualist was deeply influenced by magnetism. His name mm -hmm. was Andrew something Davis, I believe. Would you say he had a magnetic personality? I mean, I guess Quimby had the magnetic <laughs> personality. This guy was just drawn to him, right? Right, right. But he had, uh, the spiritualism idea was that the, the living can commune with the dead. Here's a fun idea. This is the timeline where people were trying to have seances and stuff. Because we're talking about the American West. Let's right. backtrack a bit to Victorian England. This is a timeline of like weird voodoo, like Ouija boards and seances yeah, yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, strange stuff going on. Yeah, that found its way to the Americas. That found Every, its way everything to... Everything found its way to the Americas. Exactly. Somehow. Except Metformin. Different story. <laughs> different story for a different time. <laughs> but what ended up happening was American spiritualism was magnetic in its mode of healing. Right. But it also believed deeply that there was a better way to heal and to find health and all this good stuff. When still had his crisis of faith from, method from the Methodist teachings, he landed in the hands of American spiritualism. It filled a void that was left by right. not having that uh, Methodist uh, foundation any longer. Exactly. So now still goes, all right, cool. There needs to be this better way to heal. What's this magnetic thing? Or rather, he found solace in spiritualism, right, which taught people right. to heal through magnetism. Now, that needs clarification. There were two ways to heal with magnets, according to these folks. Version one was actual magnets, like sit with the bath and the dials yeah, and the yeah. electrodes. Version two was actually massage. Right. Because the idea was that with the proper use of friction, um, and manipulation of the spine and of the joints, you can restore and move magnetic fluids throughout the body. Generate electrical currents and all sorts of crazy stuff. Right. And, I mean, hey, piezoelectric forces and things are pretty cool now. It, it's a thing. It's right. a thing. But it was, it was pretty unrefined at the time and not quite yeah. on the mark. 
But essentially, what we were describing is what soon evolved, not soon evolved, what eventually evolved into myofascial release, which mm -hmm. is a technique we currently use. To great effect. Indeed. For but sure. the myofascial release technique's history is magnetic healing, which came from the French, but it was baked into this idea that the living can speak with the dead. You learn them in parallel in the Americas. And still, which is just cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird stuff. It's but pretty still wonky. Cool. It, it, is, yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely wonky. Well, because keep in mind, the preacher became a spiritualist. It wasn't Joe Schmo guy out in the woods. It was the guy who was preaching the faith, ended up marrying into the spiritual thing. But here's the part where the reason I say wonky, he believed that they were the same thing, and that's where things got very strange for. His community. Yeah, some people didn't like him. Right. Uh, he, they, they called him a heretic, which was pretty strong words. Right, because he didn't abandon the faith. That's a big deal here. He didn't say no to God and then ran off to hang out with ghosts. He right. believed that the ability to commune with the dead and the ability to worship the Christian God were the same thing. And, and they that's where people started getting angry. We were like, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> pretty much. The dude was excommunicated from his church. The dude became a fugitive. He was considered a danger to church and state. Yeah, he had to treat patients in the middle of the night in top secret type type of uh, situations so that he wasn't getting himself into further trouble. Right, because here's the thing. It's not intuitive to us nowadays necessarily why healing with your hands is heretical because could you just say that, oh, no, 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 it was the spiritualism thing, not the healing thing, but really it was both. Why? You have to remember, the Methodist thing, or rather the Christian thing, has a right, there's the idea of healing with hands, the laying of hands. Right. Uh, multiple times throughout the Bible, Jesus heals by laying his hands on people and then they get better. He bestowed upon his apostles through the Holy Spirit the ability to do the same thing. Yeah, that was a major component to his ministry was healing by the laying on of hands. And generally, if you read throughout the New Testament, all of his healing, involves some kind of physical contact in one way or another, for the most part. There are some stories that don't, right. but ma a majority of them do in some way or another. Right, and then all of a sudden you get this guy, right, who's already kind of tumultuous with his, uh, tremulous with his relationship with the church because his dad was anti-slavery, right. Right? right? Hung out with a bunch of natives for a while, which that the was Americans no were afraid too. of, Yes. right? Comes yeah, back, for, for grows up, and then all of a sudden he can heal with his hands after rejecting the God that they know he rejected because he publicly stopped practicing medicine because of his lack of faith in God. The guy who abandoned his faith can heal. Now, where is this all coming from? And not only that, he was healing quickly. Right. It, it was seeing, it was miraculously instantaneous. Right. So it, it was very similar to, in, in appearance, it was very similar to faith healing. Right. And so people are going, now wait a second, the heretic is doing faith healing? And it's working, which, is strange, not just strange, it's frightening. So, burn the witch. Now, obviously we didn't burn the witch. We have a history, we survived, we made it. But the dude had to flee. He had to run, just as you mentioned. But that was really because the reason there was so much apprehension against the osteopathic thing in its inception was because it was deeply tied to this idea that whatever they were doing to make people better was ungodly. And I mean that in the most sincere and disappointing way. Because at the end of the day, it's not. But that's why this thing had so much hate in it in the beginning, because how do you explain this if not for literal demons? Here's a fun fact. So we talk about burning witches a lot, 
And oddly enough, in the Americas, that's not necessarily the case. Now, what I uh, did was go to our friendly neighborhood Wikipedia to look into that question. How did we actually execute witches in the Americas? That's a really weird sentence, I know, but just run with me for a second. It turns out, Americans weren't really into burning witches. We hung them instead. The Europeans would burn them, and the reason behind that was apparently it was considered a more painful way to die. Once upon a time, humans were pretty damn, uh, I don't swear on the show, right? We'll end it on that. Now, I know what we're going into is a little bit dark here, you know, talking about demons and whatnot. But in reality, there was a real difficulty facing Dr. Still on the frontier and with the way he was being perceived because he was doing things that no one could explain. He was doing things that no one else could reproduce in reality. There wasn't a, a, a real strong scientific foundation that would explain it. And it's easy for people to see something that they don't understand and just label it with something that, that categorizes it. And in his case, he was healing things that couldn't be healed, therefore he was a witch. Exactly. He wasn't turning anyone into a newt, but he was getting people better. Right, which is, you know, Tarvalum witchery. Yes, <laughs> the White Tower. There you go. Oh, snap. So, Thank you, Robert Jordan. Yeah. Um, the fear for what this is, in order to, I like to set the stage for these things because, mm -hmm. look, it's one thing to say that, you know, these people were backwards and they were afraid of it, and that doesn't do them justice. There's a reason they were afraid, and it's, I'm not going to comment on validity or invalidity. I'm just going to say there was a very clear evolution of thought that led to he's a witch. Does that make sense? Right, right. And I would like to try to tease us through these stories because ultimately that's still some of the psychic baggage of what we have to deal with today. Uh, we do face that to some extent from a societal uh, standpoint. When people come into our office and want us to explain the mechanism for what we do, we can get into the... the uh, anatomy and physiology, but in reality, it's difficult for people to grasp. Right. I've had more than one patient. Results. Yeah, I've had more than one patient straight up go, "Whatever kind of black magic you guys do," and I'm like, I almost take it as a compliment, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, it's really not magic, right? And they're like, "Really?" I'm like, "What do you think I am?" <laughs> like, I, I, I'm not a witch doctor here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it may seem like that, and some of my colleagues will will tell me that they're. Re referring patients to me for the voodoo magic. Right. But why Why is that the metaphor? Why do they consider us voodoo magic? It's because of the stories I think need to be fleshed out. Right. In fairness, um, we originally wanted to do this episode last year. And um, the first time we tried to even try to record this, we realized, I realized, yeah. how drastically unprepared we were for this. So in order to get this content... Dude, it was like... It took a lot more preparation than we were anticipating. I never thought I'd be rereading Paradise Lost for repetitions <laughs> with a Bible next to me. That takes some effort. Dude. That, if you've read it once, that's enough. Going into it multiple times, that's deep stuff. This, this was some meaningful labor, man. I, I, I just... Paradise Lost is not time lost, but it's definitely... Uh, it's an important book, guys. It's, it's important. So as a as a component of, of how things were perceived. So let's begin this at the stage, yeah? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. So let's start with the Christian thing. So once upon a time, Christianity was relatively relatively um univariate. There was there was different yeah, schools yeah. within the Roman Empire, but for the most part it was 
the church or the Orthodox Byzantine thing. Right. You had the Roman Catholic Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and they were the two major thought centers for Christianity for many centuries. Exactly. And right now we're focused really more on the Roman Catholic thing, just to know where we're uh, starting from. Now, there was a lot of issues with the Roman Catholic Church at the level of the various countries and societies in Europe that had to bow down to it, because in this time period, we're talking pretty much everything from roughly 400 something, 480, pretty much the end of the traditional Rome, up until the Protestant Reformation. When the empire collapsed, when the Roman Empire collapsed in the West, the church really became the superstructure that held everything together. It was the community center and the country center. Right. The the pope had the final say in who would be the king or queen to rule the country. The local uh, fathers or pastors had a significant amount of say in the community and a significant amount of influence on the communities. Right. And in becoming such a superpower, in becoming the thing that kept West of Europe together, the Catholic thing ended up become, going from the kind of niche rogue thing that you could get persecuted for, lions in Rome, right. to being the dominant faith. Now, again, I'm gleaning over lots of history there to make that sentence. Sure. There is a lot of uh, political and uh, uh, religious history that don't really apply to what we, we're talking about. So right. we're just kind of glossing over that. Right. Constantine was a thing. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Battle on a bridge. But um, all this to say, at some point, Catholicism took on a lot of rituals from the various territories that they were in charge of. Right. A lot of things that would have been called pagan became incorporated into the Christian thing. Well, you know, like Christmas. Halloween. Easter, Halloween. You know, those, those holidays that we enjoy didn't necessarily come from a strictly Christian background. Right, right. The per- they've been repurposed in the Christian sense, but there's a reason why we do the pumpkin thing on Halloween. It's not because of anything godlike. It was because, you know, the ward off spirits. There was this thing called Samhain. It's a whole story. All Hallows' Eve, All Hallows' Day. Right. Why know, does Easter have a bunny? You know what I mean? Right. And things of that sort. Why do we yeah. light candles on a Christmas tree? Why is there even a Christmas tree? But all of these things were things we picked up from the various peoples in the lands that Catholicism specifically, Roman Catholicism, was in charge of. And at some point, conquered. I'm being very kind with way. my words right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> but um, at we'll some, leave it there. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, at some point, there was dissatisfaction because, among many other things, there was folks who did not quite agree with the direction the church was going. Right. They didn't agree with, uh, specifically, the incorporation of various pagan behaviors. They didn't agree with, specifically, the things that bound us as a community to this body. Because one of the big things in the Christian idea overall, both for the East Orthodox and the Roman Catholic, is this idea of, um, you know, heaven, earth. There's this idea of cursed earth, and that's something that we should acknowledge. Now, there's no way I can paraphrase this and do it justice, so... I just straight up got the Bible quote. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Um, and, and a lot of this is going to lead into the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, John Locke, and the various uh, reformists exactly. that would come in the uh, ensuing centuries. But right. Go ahead. Share us some Genesis. Let's go with some Genesis here. Yeah. Genesis so here. that's where we're going with this one. So this is from Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree from which I have commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Through toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread until you return to the ground because out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And that the, one of the key words 
from this passage is the cursed, cursed right. ground, the cursed, corrupted ground. And normally when we see something as cursed, that becomes our opponent. We don't like things that are cursed. Right. And you can say this is some Old Testament stuff. By the time Jesus came around, did his thing, New Testament, we're good to go. So as counterpoint, the letters for, uh, to the Romans. So there's this idea that the creation waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. Um, yeah, this is the Apostle Paul talking here. Exactly. And then I tried to look into that sentence more because something just didn't sit right about it. So I found older translations in the King James Version, and what mm -hmm. it ended up saying in some of the earlier versions, I can't quite put this into English in verse cleanly, so I'm just going to come out with the idea. All right. There's the idea that the curse would be lifted on the second coming. Yes, the, the earth is to be purified and become cleaned again. Right. Essentially. So these are big ideas because most of Western civilization theoretically all of Western civilization to some degree was touched by these ideas. There's this idea that the world we live in is cursed and that's why we have to toil through it and, and everything we're doing. is unclean and right. needs to be cleansed. And then you have this pagan idea, the various pagan ideas, pagan meaning not Christian for the record, that link us to the earth. Think about, let's go, let's go with the Roman thing for a minute because that was right. what Rome was before Constantine essentially. You worshipped, what, Jupiter, Venus, so on and so forth. Gods of various uh, earth uh, or climate elements, really. So earth, water, fire, and also human passions. Right. So war, love, and the like. Right. We were bound to the earth. We were part of the earth. We were part of the cycle of time. We weren't a separate thing. We were different in a very meaningful way. There's a difference between we were placed on this earth to be its stewards and then it got cursed and now we must toil to earn our second life versus you are part of the wheel of time and the wheel we, we use as it wills. Oh, we're Two times now, right? Yes, Two yes, times. go for it, go for it. Uh, this is a shout out to Dr. Survey essentially, so you're welcome. But that's the idea in these older faiths. It's this idea that we are woven into the earth. We're we not are separate. part of it, that we're not unique to it in that context. Right, and that was considered pagan. Right. And that's a big deal here because the Protestant Reformation was a protest against various things, one of them being the paganism rampant in the Christian thing according to them. Yeah, the pagan influences, the... The, um, uh, the various festivals, the feast days. festivals and um, uh, the worship of... Um, the shrines to Mary. Shrines, yeah, not, not really idolatry, but uh, shrines and, and those kinds of things that were common within the Catholicism at the time. Right, right. I didn't know this until I was doing some of this history searching stuff, but there were so many wells to local spirits in the various parts of Europe that got repurposed to, to wells to celebrate specifically Mother Mary. But before being repurposed to Mother Mary, they were wells to the various like wood, forest, whatever spirits of the indigenous zones. And I was like, Sweet. that's kind of dope. But well, again, you if know, you're... You can understand if you're going to make something that you don't understand to something that you can accept, you give it a different name. Right. But at the same time, if you know your history, which these people did, and you know that that shrine to Mother Mary once upon a time was to, I don't know, Aphrodite, and you have beef with that, you're going to say something. So these people said something. The most extreme Protestants, in a technical sense, the most like radical, violent, um, passionate, I'll just say, Protestants were those who became yeah. the Puritans. They're the right. ones who s hopped on a boat and sailed across the ocean blue and became the Americans. They were kind of forced their way over, too, because of the extremity of their their stance. Right. The fight for religious freedom was the freedom to be the way they ought to be, which is honestly quite severe. 
there's a reason we refer to things that are that severe as puritanical. Yes. So the Methodist thing was born out of the Puritan thing. Specifically, the Methodists were those Puritans in the Americans in the Americas that thought they had to believe they had to preach and spread this. The the Methodists. So here's the thing. There's traveling preachers, right? Yeah, they were going out in the uh, American frontier, and they dealt with a quote-unquote pagan people, whatever various Native American tribes, which all emphasized a connection with earth, which would throw would throw up red flags everywhere because they're like, wait a second, the, the preachers would be saying, no, the earth is corrupt, and the Native American population is like, no, we're part of the earth. Right. So there was a real, uh, a, a real conflict there. Exactly. It's, there, there's, it's easy to layer the racism talk about the whites against the Native Americans in this context, but you have to remember, in the eyes of this puritanical Methodist thing, these were soldiers of God trying to purify the land. Right. The reason they were so, so against this idea was because these people weren't just a different ethnicity. In their hearts, some of them, the more extreme of them, not all of them, but the most extreme, consider them subhuman because these natives genuinely believe themselves to be bound to the earth. So either option one, they're wrong, we can purify them, we can convert we them. We can convert them, we can baptize them, we right. can make or, them godly. Or two, they really are bound to the earth, in which case, what are they if not devils? And this would throw everyone off because one of their very own Methodist preachers would go to the, this group and come back and say, no, wait a second. We are part of nature. Nature is part of us. And so many of the Protestant community would say, whoa, wait a second. This guy's gone off the deep end. Exactly. He's a heretic. He's a witch. He, we need to do whatever to, to either avoid him or um, punish him for his heresies. Exactly. Because what? It's one thing to say that I can heal people with magnets. It's another thing to say that I can heal people with magnets, but the reason people can heal with magnets is because of the power of American spiritualism, which we must remember was this idea that the nature was all healing, this idea that nature can commune and so on and so forth. The connection with the living and the dead was because the living and the dead can exist upon this same earth. The idea was that everything existed on this earth. And that's a big problem to somebody who believes that the world is cursed. This is why Still was considered so dangerous. It wasn't because he can heal with his hands. Yeah, the medical establishment could be pissed off about, all right, he's better than us at pneumonia. But that's not the point here. Because why wouldn't they just take it? Why wouldn't they just go, God, this guy figured out a new technique, let's have it. They went a different direction. But you have to remember, the philosophical and theological background that led to osteopathy came from a place that was a direct assault on this idea of the cursed earth. It was a, it was a complete change of direction. Right. A and we have to understand also that the medical community still had a religious basis for what they did. Um, because most of America at the time was religious in one way or another. So we couldn't necessarily separate our science from our religion right. because of the morality involved with that. So it would be very difficult for people to see what Dr. Still was doing and separate from what he was doing from the religious uh, conviction that what he was doing was quote-unquote evil. Right. As you said before, to heal in this timeline, in, in this uh, life, is the is a godly act. It is the role of that preacher doctor to heal. And right. if you're healing without the uh, prescribed fashion, you're drawing from something else because at this time you sincerely believe that these gods and demons and things influence. And if there's one true God and you're healing without the 
blessing of the church, you're healing without the power of the one true, which means you've either found somebody else or you're a fraud, but he was too good to be a fraud. And that was the amazing thing, is he had such success. Uh, he, he was called, it was what, the Missouri Mecca? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had people coming from all over the country, and his overriding success, which I have to say it took years to build up. It wasn't an immediate success. It took some time. Eventually, his healing success would have to overcome this reticence on the religious community to recognize what he was doing. There's great stories, one about a, uh, a minister's wife who <laughs> waited till her husband was out on a trip and, and their daughter had been paralyzed, could not walk. The wife calls in Dr. Still says, Doc, I need you to fix my daughter. And so what does he do? He fixes her. And when the, her dad comes home, she walks to her dad to greet him. And what did the minister have to do? And he had to recognize the value of what Dr. Steele did. Right. And the, I can only imagine, this is all supposition on my part, how that would create um, internal turmoil for this, this minister. Right. That some kind of heretic just healed my daughter. What am I going to do with this? Right. Your options are he's a witch, so my w daughter was healed by witchcraft, or this guy's onto something, like secular, or right. this guy's actually with God. Options two and three both kind of absolve the guy of his crimes. Mm -hmm. Option one means shoot him on sight. He didn't get shot. So, so he settled something. down in that town. <laughs> so he settled down in the town and enjoyed great success over time. Now, granted, Dr. Still did have to practice in secret for a while. Right. Uh, while everything was coming, or, or, or while everything was solidifying into a more um, stable approach, if you will, he did have to practice in, in, in secrecy. Right. Because again, the way we're telling the story implies that everybody's conscious of the phenomenon, right? This is not necessarily something that's at the tip of everybody's tongue. This is depth psychological. This is some Jungian mode of talking about these events because these are the ideas beneath the ideas that make the beliefs behind the motions. You know what I mean? These aren't exactly, you don't necessarily walk up to somebody and go, I believe you're a witch because, and then you cite the literature, you, you feel it in your bones, but mm -hmm. why do they feel that in their bones? And this is why. One of the questions I had after reading all this was, is that still the case? Do we still have that type of, we'll say, psychic baggage regarding our bodies? And I think about specifically uh, Paradise Lost, because there's a difference between the things that are church canon and things that have been so influential to the Christian system that even though they're not canon, they have become part of the mythos of the system, part of the grand right. image of the system, like right. Dante's Inferno. Like the circles of hell thing is nowhere in the Bible, man. That's epic poetry by some Italian dude. Right. The idea of uh, Lucifer Morningstar falling from the skies into the pit, that's not Bible stuff, man. That no. came straight from um, an English poet named John Milton. Yep. But, yep. but that, it, it is it's almost like canon. Exactly. In, in certain circles. Right. That has become the image of the system that has become the image of the faith. And I remember it's chapter one of Paradise Lost and that image stuck with me for a long time. One, because it, it's kind of metal. I'm not gonna lie, yeah, it's pretty yeah, dope. It's, it's pretty cool stuff. But at the same time, it's this book was accepted as um, popular reading. This became like, you know, like all of us understand Marvel comics right now. Right. Like if I talk about like Iron Man and stuff, you understand me. If 
you talked about Milton's uh, Paradise Lost. People got it. They might have hated it, but they all understood it. And there was this idea that when Lucifer fell from the heavens and his angels, his fallen angels, crashed down into the pit with him, when they made the, the uh, agreement to raid the earth and to curse his land, the way to curse it was specifically this. The lesser demons, the fallen angels and whatnot, would inhabit and intermingle with the spirits of the earth such that the thing that the pagans considered gods would become the demons of the Christian faith, as in they didn't, uh, the Christians in this timeline would not believe necessarily that, I don't know, Zeus wasn't real. They believed Zeus was real. But that just he was a, a demon that had been cast in, with Satan and his other exactly. compadres, essentially. Right, and then you have these people who worship the earth, who venerate the land, and how could you not but fear them because they worship the thing that you believe to be a demon? It makes it difficult. It makes it difficult for people to look on someone like Dr. Still and see his emphasis on nature and the value of nature and say, hey, this is someone I can trust with my, with my health care. Right. And yet, the results could not be disputed. Right. And you can imagine the turmoil in these people, too, because don't forget, juxtaposed against this idea of cursed earth, there's also the other, also inaccurate, but, you know, it's still in the psyche image of the noble savage. Because even though a lot of the uh, West believe th these people to be primitive, they also believe them to be like exemplary specimens of human condition. If only they were not demon-worshipping savages. Right, but then they would be amazing specimens of uh, humanity. Exactly, and that was the way these people were conceived, as brutal as that sounds. How would these people be so strong and so savage? Perhaps to be strong is to be savage. These ideas get intermingled in such a way that Perhaps it's the case that we don't believe our bodies to be nearly as strong as they can be. And that's the challenge that A.T. Still with his osteopathic medicine gives to us now. There's this idea that we can be way much more than we think we are. And he used his, his learning as a, a magnetic healer and as a spiritualist and as a bone setter. The lightning bone the setter. The lightning bone setter. This guy was quick <laughs> and he was effective. He overcame much of this difficulty with time. It took time, but he did overcome it right. eventually. And some people still joke that we're witches. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. And after you said that, I'm not sure I want to be that anymore. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not a witch, I'm your doctor. And after you said that, I still want to be your doctor. Right. But thankfully, neuroscience evolved in such a way. We have an understanding now of neuroplasticity and motor learning and Wolf's Law and all of the things that we actually theoretically understand and teach to our students so we don't just say, you know, it's witchcraft. Um, we can explain the mechanisms behind some of what we do, at least with some accuracy, as opposed to chalking it up to hands good magnets go. So, uh, you know, an osteopathic physician does not go to a school of witchcraft and wizardry, but definitely goes to a school of osteopathic wizardry, if you will. And as we work through all of this, we learn that nature really does have this beautiful continuity that allows us to heal. Right. If we, if we follow uh, what uh, the tradition that uh, Dr. Steele approached us with, we can heal. We can find problems. We can fix them, and then we will leave them alone. Without witchcraft. Without witchcraft. And thanks again for joining us for another exciting episode of Rolling Bones. Uh, we appreciate your listening to us this week, and the next episode, we're going to go into how sedentary life is killing us. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N, Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This blog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.